So the second um, of the Noble Eightfold Path wisdom factors that I want to speak about is right view. And this is the first, actually the first factor of the whole Noble Eightfold Path. Because without right view, without the Buddha's understanding of the way things are, kind of as a map to guide our journey, we won't find our way. When Sariputta, the second to the Buddha in wisdom, was asked by some monks one time, how do we establish right view within our own heart? Sariputta said there's two elements. You have to hear what the right view is from someone else first. That's like, if you want to make a journey to an unknown place, you need to get a map or a guide. That's not so hard to accept, is it? But yet, when we think, yeah, but I want to stop suffering, and, they, and uh, someone says, yeah, but you've got to get a guide. You've got to get a map. We think, I know what my suffering is. I know how to, I know how to stop suffering. And we've been trying in all kinds of dysfunctional ways to stop suffering. And we haven't succeeded yet. So, sorry, Buddha said you need to hear it from somebody else. But hearing and believing is not going to be sufficient to get it into your own heart. It's just a map. But the map is not the journey. You know, the map is just a map. It's guidelines. How to take the journey. And so when we hear the Buddhist teachings, or when we read about it, or you hear about it from me or other teachers, all we have is a map. We actually have to take the journey to see for ourselves what these right views are. And the second element of establishing right view in your heart is hearing it from another and then wise attention, which is what we're doing. We meditate to develop right views. This cannot be achieved by the ego. Meditation must proceed naturally by watching any experience just as it is. This is the way to develop right view. This is a, a teaching from Shweyu Minsayana. This is Sayo Tejaniya's teacher. Shweyu So, right view in the Dharma, right view in the path, right view in meditation, right view of liberation. There's a lot of right views that we can hear about to support our practice here. Sairotejaniya says of right view of the Dharma, he says, the right view of the Dharma is to inspire and motivate us to try to capture and build upon the elusive thread of wisdom that has drawn us into meditation practice in the first place. Already there's some wisdom that is drawn to meditation. Some right view is drawn there. Bringing both awareness and wisdom to each moment is a continuous, in a continuous and sustained way, will allow nature to take over the way it is. Nature, the way it is, the laws of nature, they, they're in operation whether we know it or not. And if we just practice awareness with wisdom, the laws of nature that govern the unfolding of the mind will take over. With the only effort required being a genuine interest in seeing what the meditation can uncover, and bring it into our life. That's the only requirement. Hear right view, be interested. 
That could be the end of the talk, right? You got it. Get right here. Be interested. I'll fill it out a little more, though. <laughs> Just in case. <coughs> so, what are these skillful views that we need to understand about the Dharma, for example? Well, as I said earlier, the Dharma is the way things are. The Dharma is the laws of nature. The Dharma is the teachings of the Buddha. The Dharma is each moment's experience that you have. Okay. Things are the way they are because the laws of nature govern that, you know, if, if you plant an orange seed, you're going to get an orange tree. You plant a banana seed, bananas don't have seeds. Sorry, you get these little sprouts. If you plant them, you're not going to get a pear tree. Okay? So we know that. That's the law of nature. We can't, we didn't make the law of nature, and we can't go against the law of nature. We can tinker with it, but basically it's got its own momentum. But there are laws of nature that govern the unfolding of the mind, which Western science is only now beginning to study. Western science knows the laws of nature of the biology and of the physical laws of nature, like the laws of gravity, the laws of seeds, the laws of seasons. Yeah, Western scientists study that. Now Western science is beginning to study the uh, laws governing the unfolding of the mind. And they're getting their ideas of the research to do from Buddhist monks. Why? Well, because the Buddhist monks have heard from the Buddha the way it is, have practiced, have realized, confirmed it to some degree, and give the scientists some idea of how the mind is working. So then they have to design these tests that Western science will accept to see if they actually, if that's an accurate way of understanding the mind. But we're doing the very same thing here. We've heard the Buddhist, Buddhist teachings, and as we pay attention to our mind and body, we are studying the laws of nature as manifest in a human being. You know, it's no different for a dog, or a cow, or a human being. The laws of nature, same. So what is the laws of nature that we need to be uh, attuned to? You know, I talked about the conditioning that we receive from our parents. I talked about the conditioning we receive from the climate that we grow up in, the religion of our uh, neighborhood, uh, we're conditioned by all those things. Everything about us is conditioned. Our past experiences weigh heavily on how we approach a similar experience in the present. If we've had this kind of experience in the past, we'll take our cues from that as to how to respond in the present. But not only are we conditioned by the past, we're also conditioned by the future. Think about it. Why are you here? Why are you making all this effort? Because you have some, you have somewhere in there, you have this idea in the future that maybe you can suffer less. Maybe mindfulness is a good thing. I'm going to try and do that. So our ideas of the future condition what we do in the present. Who you associate with conditions how you understand, how you experience, everything about your life. So, what we should understand is that whatever arises in our mind and body is conditioned. 
as Utejaniya says, the mind is not yours, but you're responsible for it. So what this means is, what arises in your experience, what arises in the experience of the body, you don't control. You can't, you know, as much as I'd like to say, you know, throat, be healthy. <laughs> I can't make it happen. I cannot make it happen. I can manipulate conditions and try to be nice to it and hope that it heals, whatever, but I can't make it happen. I, the body is not mine, right? We, we, we can tell the body, be comfortable. <laughs> it doesn't work, does it? You can't tell the body anything. The body is not yours to command. You know, we, we eat well, we get our exercise, we get our sleep, we do whatever we want, and still the body has its own agenda. It's out of our control. Right? Same with the mind. If we could say, mind, be happy, we'd be done. You can say, mind, be happy, but it doesn't work. Why? Because the mind is not yours. What comes into the mind is deeply conditioned by prior, past, present, future experiences, other people's views and opinions, ideas. You don't get to choose very little of what comes into the mind. And yet, Whatever experience happens to this body, whatever experience comes into the mind, you got to deal with it, right? We got to do our best to try to, you know, not act it out, not suffer with it, uh, take care of it, do whatever we can to kind of be responsible for it, so that it doesn't torment us beyond out of reason. So the body, the mind, not yours, and yet you're responsible for it. If you don't take care of it you'll really suffer. Even if you do the best you can, you'll still probably suffer. Right? I mean, I'm not making this up, right? You know, if you don't agree, you don't have to listen. But it's kind of obvious, isn't it? That this is the way it is. That understanding should be paramount in your mind all the time when you're practicing. Because what you experience in the body, in the mind, you're not making happen. You're not making it happen. Okay? There's causes and conditions to that thing that are outside of your control. But you have to deal with it. So don't blame yourself for everything that you're experiencing. Pain in the body, restlessness in the mind, sleepiness in the mind. Don't blame yourself. You just have to deal with it. That's all. That would really, if we could really believe that, you know, it would relieve so much unnecessary suffering. We just would see, you know what, this is the way it is, it's unpleasant, let me deal with it. But instead we add layers of judgment and layers of blame and layers of sense of inferiority and in, you know, being inadequate somehow because you know, it's not going the way I want it to go. See, that's, that's all unnecessary. That's all extra suffering. So conditioning is really important to understand. Another right view of, of this whole process of being human is everything you experience is natural. You don't ever experience anything that's unnatural. It's not, it's not accidental. It's not that it's not supposed to happen. It's happening due to the lawful unfolding of causes and conditions. You may not understand all those causes and conditions. You may not know where all of them that are coming together to create this experience, to condition this experience. But 
if you can understand, if you can begin to hear that it's natural, it's nature, it's okay in that sense. It may be unpleasant. So when you when you when you look at your experience or when you get a get a view of it, rather than asking yourself, do I like, do I like this? Is this okay? No, <laughs> unpleasant things we don't like. We don't. It's not okay. But the question really should be: Is it okay to be aware of this? It's unpleasant. It's disgusting. It's not what I want. It's tormenting. Yeah, but is it okay to be aware of it? It better be because you're already aware of it, right? Otherwise, you wouldn't even be you wouldn't even be reacting to it. Right? So we're already aware of it. So all we're doing is giving ourselves permission to acknowledge what we're already aware of. We have to go. We don't have to go find something new to be aware of. We just have to be willing to acknowledge what we already are aware of as natural, normal. Normalize everything. That's why I like to do group check-ins because you hear people talking about things. You go, "Oh my God, I don't want to experience that," but it's normal. <laughs> it's all normal. It's all natural. There's no mistakes here. So conditioning. And everything is normal. What's happening here is the, is the unfolding of the laws of nature. Now, skillful views in meditation. How should we understand our meditation? Well, when we pay attention, we are definitely going to discover, you know, unskillful habits of mind. Right? That's that just that's what we're looking for. We're noticing suffering. So. When we practice, it's helpful to know that any kind of practice is cultivating wholesome qualities of mind. Any kind of practice. You can do loving-kindness practice, concentration practice, mantra practice, visualization practice, reflections practice, all kinds of practices. It's cultivating skillful, wholesome states of mind. And when you do, then it arrests, it suppresses, it puts aside unwholesome habits of mind. So it doesn't matter really what kind of practice you're doing. Just do, just keep doing wholesome practices. Practice generosity, practice right speech, practice right action, practice you know, anything you can because it's cultivating these skillful attitudes of mind, skillful understanding, skillful views of mind. And as they gain in momentum, you will, they'll, they'll be easier. They'll, they'll come with more ease. And when you do, then it puts aside, it, it keeps out the unskillful states of mind that torment us. It's important. And it's also important to understand that meditation is the work of the mind. Now I spoke this morning about mindfulness. Now the function of mindfulness is to remember. And then it manifests as observing and it has the characteristic of not floating away, meaning it's, it kind of gloms onto, not with attachment, but it just sticks on the object. Remembering, observing, enduring, or sustaining. It's all in the mind. Remembering is an activity of the mind. Observing is an activity of the mind. Steady sustaining is an activity of the mind. It's not primarily about the body. Yeah, we got a body. We have the body. We have to work with the body. But it's working with the mind. And the mind is very subtle. 
you know, we beat the mind up awful sometimes. And we express the mind sometimes in the most outrageous, brutal ways. And yet, being aware of the mind is very difficult. To be aware of our thoughts, to be aware of our assumptions, to be aware of our intentions before acting, and particularly to be aware of awareness. Really difficult. Because we're so fascinated with more predominant objects. Physical stimulation, you know, ex- you know, extravagant, you know, strong experiences in the body just kind of obscure the subtlety of the mind. So we have to just understand that, that we're going to have to deal with some difficult, you know, unpleasant stuff in the body and some pleasant stuff in the body. But don't be distracted by that. Know that you were looking at the mind. Really understand that we're working with the mind in this meditation practice. Because when you think about it, you know, being sad, thinking, thinking about your sadness, and being aware that sadness has arisen in the mind are three very, very different experiences. And it's all in how you're relating to the experience. Right? And they all require that sadness is present for any other mental state. But if you're sad, that's one experience, big suffering. If you're kind of explaining and figuring out your sadness, then you're caught in a kind of an obsessive turmoil of sadness. If you're aware, if there's an awareness of sadness, then there's a recognition of, oh, this has arisen due to causes and conditions, and this is its nature. Not suffering. Sadness is still there, but you're not suffering with it. This is the path of the development of wisdom. And we use this we use this information. Everything I'm saying and everything you've read about the Dharma and practice and what's skillful and what's not skillful is information you need to know how to practice. But when you're practicing, you actually have to use that information intelligently. You have to remind yourself, wait a minute, things are conditioned. This is a, this is a conditioned experience. I'm not making it happen. And yet I'm responsible for it. You have to remind yourself, you have to use this knowledge intelligently as you practice. This is the skillful use of thought in practice. So we want to have the right view, we want to have the right understanding to use right thought with in our, in our practice. do, or when we have some skill at that, some facility at practice, we begin to open to, we begin to get a glimpse of what in the Buddhist language, or you know, Danny Goleman's uh, articulation of the ideal type of personality from a Buddhist perspective, is very different than the fixed, rigid personality type that I spoke about. And he says, the ideal type personality from a Buddhist perspective. This is, for those, as we progress along the path and develop this Noble Eightfold Path, this is the direction we're going. The ideal type of personality is without greed for sense pleasures, without any anxiety or resentment, without any fear of any sort. No dogmatisms, no aversion to loss, no aversion to disgrace, no aversion to pain, no aversion to blame. 
No lust, no anger, no experience of suffering, no need for approval. Pleasure, praise, or the desire for oneself beyond the essential and the necessary. There is a prevalence of impartiality towards others and an equilibrium at all times with an ongoing alertness and calm delight in ordinary as well as boring experience. There is strong compassion and loving kindness that arise spontaneously. Perceptions are quick and accurate, and one maintains composure and skill in action with openness to others being responsive to their needs. Why wouldn't we want that? Well, that's the direction we're going. You know, as we practice, as we develop these Noble Eightfold Path factors, beginning with right view, how we understand our life, and right thought, how we put it into action, if you will, through our practice, this is the direction we're going. Being aware intelligently will help you to deepen your practice, to come to new understandings. Ultimately, it will help you to fulfill the objective of mindfulness meditation, which is Vipassana insights. Being aware intelligently will help you to fulfill the objective of mindfulness meditation, which is Vipassana insights. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.